me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. And particularly, Lord, as we begin this sermon series, we ask that you would so enlighten our minds that we would see your love for us as your people and understand just how much you have done throughout history and will continue to do until the consummation of your kingdom. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're starting this new sermon series on the patriarch and promise of God. And you might be wondering today, why in the world are we starting with lessons from Acts in the New Testament when we're doing an Old Testament sermon series? Well, I wanted to start by telling you a story. A few years ago, uh, my wife and I, before we had children, went to New York City and we went to Ellis Island. And while at Ellis Island, we were able to look up the papers of my immigrant parents, or great-grandparents, actually, and see how they traveled across the ocean back in the early 20th century, came, coming through Ellis Island to stand in the same lines that they stood in. We were able to do that, to stand in their footsteps. And, and it was very powerful to see that. Now, my family, on one side, is, is, is fairly recent to this country, um, compared to Leah's. Leah's family goes back to the revolution here. Um, but I was talking to Father Joshua last week, and he doesn't know I'm saying this, but he and I were talking about uh, his family coming over here and just how it will be one day that your children and your children's children will speak of great-grandpa Joshua, the great patriarch, bringing his line here to the United States. And that's why we're starting in the New Testament, because we're looking here at our roots. We're looking at our lineage, spiritually speaking. We're looking at that through Jesus and through St. Stephen's speech, looking back to the great father of the faith, the great patriarch Abraham. And it underlines a couple things starting in the New Testament. Number one, that we as Anglican Christians believe that the Old Testament is as much the Word of God as the New Testament. And number two, we believe that Scripture always should be used to interpret Scripture. That there's a connection, a continuum between what God does for his Old Testament and New Testament people. So the Old Testament is the Word of God. Now, perhaps we don't always treat it that way. How many times have you heard people say, oh, well, that's the Old Testament? Or, I don't read the Old Testament. Friends, let me admonish you. Read the Old Testament. For in the Old Testament is not just our Christian lineage, but is also the preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ, and a more full understanding of it gives us a fuller understanding 
of Jesus. I know sometimes people get hung up on things in the Old Testament. I think a lot of times people are confused or misunderstand things of the covenant, but don't let that deter you. If we want to be Christians, followers of Jesus, we can't dismiss the Old Testament because it's Jesus' history. And Jesus viewed it as authoritative. The Old Testament Bible is Jesus' Bible, in fact. The early church, and it's also the early church's Bible, because the New Testament was still being written in those early days of the church. Think about how often Jesus references the law and the prophets, for example, or the law of Moses. Surely we run across that time and time again. And when you think of those phrases, what do you think of? You probably might have an obscure idea of, well, this is Jesus referring back to Moses and his sayings, but he's actually referring to something very specific. He's referring to the law, and when he says the law, or you see the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, sometimes called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Pentateuch and the Torah, but in Scripture we see it as the law, or the law of Moses. It is, in fact, the Hebrew Bible, and scholars say that in the four Gospels alone, there are 222 quotations of the Old Testament, at least. That doesn't count all the allusions to it, or the paraphrases of it. The Apostle Paul writes to the young bishop Timothy in the mid-60s, so a mere, depending on when you date the crucifixion, under, you know, a mere few years after Christ's death and resurrection, he writes to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. But you know what? He's writing that about the Old Testament. We know that because there simply is no New Testament to be called Scripture for St. Paul to reference there yet. Jesus, the Son of God, testifies to the validity of the Old Testament. When Jesus himself says it's important in Matthew 5, 17, where he, write, where he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, i.e. the Pentateuch, or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law, until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven." But whoever practices and teaches the commandments will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. There was actually an early heresy in the church that arose in the second century called Marcionism. Perhaps some of you have heard of it. There was a bishop, Marcion, who bought his way into the church and um, was consecrated and started teaching that the New Testament is the only thing that mattered. And he misled Christians for 300 years. There was this sect called Marcionists that followed his teaching. 
Finally, they died out and were condemned by the church throughout. But friends, without the Hebrews, there is no church. Without the Old Testament people of God, there is no church. If we grew up in the church, chances are we read the stories of Jesus' children, or of Genesis, rather, as children. Maybe in Sunday school, with the felt boards, or other low-tech technology that our churches might have had. Maybe our parents read to us the story Bibles, introducing us to the characters, to Noah, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph. That's good for children. It's a good thing. It's like learning grammar in grammar school, right? But if our Old Testament knowledge stops there, we're doing ourselves a great disservice. We're robbing ourselves of thousands of years of seeing God's grace and mercy beyond the basic figures of the Old Testament. You see, God implements his plan of salvation from immediately after Adam and Eve bring sin into the world in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, before creation, God knew that he was going to send his son, Jesus Christ, In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, speaking to Adam and Eve, what's often called the curse, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first proclamation of the proto-gospel in the Old Testament where God promises that he is going to send a man out of the seed of Adam and Eve to crush the serpent's head. It's called the Proto-Evangelion. And from that point on, we see salvation history start, where God starts his plan to bring his people back to him. And so... As Orthodox, historical Christians, we don't see a bunch of random stories in the Old Testament. We don't see a bunch of character sketches in the Old Testament. You know, sometimes you'll hear people preach this way. Like the Old Testament is a moral um, instruction, right? Maybe you were even taught this at some point. Be like David. David was brave. Or be like Joseph. Joseph Uh, forgave his brothers. And there's some good to that, but that's not the main point. Because if you look at the other side of David and Joseph, they ain't so hot. They're sinners in need of redemption. But what the main point is, is that through this line will come a Savior. Through this line, through this lineage, through these ancestors, will come Jesus Christ. That's why in our lesson today from Acts, the first martyr of the church, a deacon by the name of St. Stephen, dies for the faith. But in his speech, where does he start? He starts with Abraham. Right? He starts with Abraham. Look at the first lesson with me. Acts chapter 7. Verse 2. 
St. Stephen, who's called here before the council in the Sanhedrin, we read earlier in, in Acts in verse 10, starts by saying, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And if you look, and at first glance, this might seem odd. Why is it that St. Stephen is lecturing a bunch of Jews, the leaders of the Jewish committee, or uh, community rather, on their lineage? The reason is that he's been given the divine gift of holy wisdom, which we talked about last week. And he has this perspective of history from that holy wisdom to show them that in fact Christianity is the fulfillment and continuation of Judaism. That Christianity is not a new religion but it is the culmination of Judaism. That everything was for this point of Jesus' coming. And that as a follower of Jesus, he is being a good Jew. He is accepting the Messiah that was promised from the beginning. And he's pleading with them that they might accept this Jesus who all time looked forward to. Look at the rest of the speech real quickly. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, you can look at the full speech where he goes through the whole history of the Hebrew people. I've just taken a selection here. But in it we see St. Stephen relating how God appeared to Abraham, how he calls him to go from his kindred in Cal- in the, with the Chaldeans, how he removes him from his land, how he promises him inheritance, how he foretold the Egyptian, slave, the Egyptian slavery that would come for 400 years. How they would come out of that place and worship without fear, as Zechariah tells us in our gospel passage today. How the covenant of circumcision would come about and how the father of the great patriarchs would be the father, humanly speaking, of the Christ. The four main points that we see in his speech are points that are going to shape the rest of this sermon series. Number one, that God reveals himself. God reveals himself. Number two, that God calls his people. God calls his people. Number three, that God makes promises. Number four, that God's faithfulness and provision always sustain his people. And number five, that God's people are given the choice of response to accept and obey or reject and perish. These themes come around again and again in the life of Abraham throughout his journey with God and throughout the Old Testament. The reason are, it's the pattern of human beings. There's a pattern that Jesus follows, too. 
And in regards to the three responses, number three, Jesus' response is always obedience. Jesus always responds to God with perfect obedience, which is why the Old Testament comes to a close in him. The covenant relationship is also a theme that we're going to see through the next few weeks, next few months, actually. We'll see in this sermon series how God makes and teaches and preserves a people through covenant. From the beginning, God knew that only Jesus would be able to perfectly keep any covenant entirely. But nevertheless, he chooses Abraham to make a holy people of his descendants. And so, in a way, the Old Testament is a catalog of human failure and God's faithfulness up until Christ. And so it's important that we see this Abraham as Jesus saw him. For unless we understand the greatness of Abraham, we cannot understand the preeminence of Christ. Jesus speaks about Abraham and how Abraham would welcome Jesus' day. In John chapter 8, verse 53, we read this. It's a discussion between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And they ask him, Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, Are you not yet, you are not yet fifty years old. How, have it that, how is it that you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And what Jesus is saying there is that he's the second person of God and he existed before Abraham, but he's also saying, notice, that Abraham looked towards him with gladness. So you see this continuity between Old and New Testament. The great preacher from the late 300s, St. Chrysostom, said this, Abraham saw and was gladdened at the cross, for this was the salvation of the world. So when we look at Genesis, at first it appears that we're given just that we're given very little information on Abraham's origins. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Genesis chapter 11. What's going on in Genesis chapter 11? Hmm. 
genealogies, that's right. And the Tower of Babel, right? The story of the Tower of Babel and genealogies. Now, after the flood of Noah, there's this story of the Tower of Babel, but there are also these genealogies. And notice, in chapter 11, verse 10, whose descendants are we talking about? Shem, right? Shem, the son of Noah. But then turn back and look at chapter 10. Why are there two genealogies here? Did you ever ask that? If you don't have your Bibles in this series, it's going to be very confusing to you. So if you didn't bring it today, you get a free pass. But next week, you better have your Bibles with you or it's going to be hard to follow. There are some in the pews. Why would there be two genealogies here? Well, there are two here because... I'm sorry, I can't hear you guys because of the fan. Two sons. Well, yes... So that's a, good, that's a good distinction. So there's actually two genealogies because we're dealing with the three sons, actually, of Noah, Shem of, of which is one. But there's another reason. There's another reason. And that's the, the genealogy, genealogy of Shem is the genealogy of Abraham. And so it gets listed twice, if you notice. Twice. Why? Because one is talking about the generations of Noah, the tribes of the earth, the nations of the world, but the other is the history of promise, the messianic line that we see again and again through King David, ultimately to Jesus Christ. And so way back here, when Moses is writing Genesis, he is actually divinely inspired to separate out this genealogy in chapter 10 and 11 to show that there is a lineage of faith or promise as well as a lineage of just human generation. It's a statement of continuity. You don't have to flip back to it, but in Genesis chapter 9, the Lord says, to Noah, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. We all know the, the um, children's story of how Noah makes the sacrifice and there's a rainbow in the sky, right? And the rainbow in the sky is the promise that God will never destroy the earth through the flood again. But there's another promise there, and that is this covenant that in Noah's offspring will be a blessing. In Genesis 9.26, Noah says to his son, Shem, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Again, there's no accidental statements in the Bible. This is a statement that his line will be the faithful line to the Messiah. So writing through Moses and the author of Genesis, here we see this underlying fact that despite the flood and despite the Tower of Babel afterwards, God is preserving his people through this line. 
all the way to Abraham. He is preserving them from the folly of the world. But there's actually another twist which is interesting, and that's that Abraham and his father Terah, from this lineage, were also pagans. They were also pagans. Notice the Tower of Babel is this tower to the sky. Where does Abraham and Terah, his father, come out from? Ur of the Chaldeans. Who is the god of Ur? The moon god. The moon god, to whom towers are built. Archaeology calls them ziggurats. You guys remember your history? There were these step-like things, kind of like the pyramids. Ziggurats. And so Abraham is coming, is living in the midst, his lineage is living in the midst of these pagans. And in fact, we know that his family themselves had fallen into worshiping idols. Joshua chapter 24, verse 2, we read that Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, Lot's fathers, served other gods. That's Joshua 24, 2. But at the same time, at the end of Genesis, chapter 31, verse 53, we read that the God of Abraham was also the God of Nahor, Abraham's brother and Lot's father, and the God of Terah. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this? That Abraham's lineage still worshipped the one true God most high, but had fallen into also worshipping pagan gods. And they're hedging their bets. They're worshipping the true God, but they're also going to, you know, worship the moon god too, just to make sure. We also know this because of their names. What's in a name? In the Old Testament, there's a lot in names, right? Well, the wife of Abraham, Abram at the time, is Sarai. And she's actually named after the wife of the moon god. The brother, the wife of his brother, is named Milcah, who's named after the daughter of the moon god. And Terah is named after the moon god. And so we see this mixed mess of faith in the lineage that God's going to have to call Abraham and his father out of to come away from these false gods and their worship. But we see God's faithful preservation of the line anyway. Abraham's family is weak but God is strong. And so that's where we're going to pick up next week with the rest of the lineage of Abraham and with God's calling him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and giving him the promise of a new land. And we're going to see how God forms and shapes Abram into Abraham and Sarai into Sarah. And this mixed bag of lineage into the chosen people of God. And so, in your bulletins, there should be an insert. I'm going to try to put these in.
in the sermon series from time to time with questions for you. I'd like you to just put this in your Bible or prayer book and think about it this week. What insights does the prophet Zechariah, which is the gospel reading today, or the martyr Stephen's speeches give to you about Abraham? Go back and look at the New Testament passages and think about Abraham again in a new way. What insights does that give to you? Number two, what wisdom does looking at Genesis through the lens of salvation, perhaps this is the first time you're hearing of this, looking at Genesis through Jesus, what insights does that give to you in your Christian walk? Number three, how does Abraham's lineage resemble your own? Where do you come from? Not just humanly, but spiritually. Are your parents Christians? Were their parents Christians? Father Joshua told me the story of how his grandparent, his grandfather, was a pagan worshiper. And so he actually changed his name because of his changed identity. Sometimes we forget as modern-day Americans, how much we're affected by a lineage of faith. So, think about that for a moment. How does that affect your relationship with Christ? What other godparents or parents in faith are part of your life if they weren't part of your lineage? Perhaps you didn't grow up with Christian parents. Who was it that led you to Jesus? What lineage do you have of faith? And next week, we'll ask the questions, how does God's call on Abraham resemble your own call? What did he call you to leave? What did he call you to forsake? And what patterns of obedience and disobedience are in your own life that he's still calling you out of? Friends, we're starting a great journey. We'll be going through Genesis all the way to All Saints Day. And so buckle up, because I think we're going to have a good journey ahead of us together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.